So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Paul O'Doherty. I'm Registrar and Deputy President of this university, and as someone with a background in languages and who got enthralled by the opportunities that Europe presented as a 10-year-old when I went to Austria and made a career in German, I'm kind of, I've had a lifelong commitment, I suppose, to trying to break down barriers and borders, and I understand the German perspective on it, and I understand the Irish perspective on it, and I lived through both in East and West Germany in the 80s and in the North and South of Ireland at different stages. And I can totally relate to Owen's comment earlier about uh, the centre of Belfast being a ghost town from tea time in the 90s, uh, it being my native town. It was like that in the 80s and 70s. At least you hoped it was a ghost town because the alternative was something far louder some of the times. Uh, anyway, it gives me great pleasure in this context to introduce uh, Mairead McGuinness, our next speaker. Uh, the third person in the last couple of hours born in Drogheda to grace this stage, I have to say. <laughs> Although Mairead grew up in RD, uh, not a million miles from Drogheda. And uh, amongst other things was uh, the first female graduate of the degree in agricultural economics at UCD. And that has served her well in some of the work that she did later, which included being the European People's Party representative on the renegotiation of the common agricultural policy. Mairead has been an MEP since 2004 uh, and uh, has done sterling work in her role as first vice president of the European Parliament. Perhaps one of the most memorable occasions was just recently when uh, in a rather boisterous sitting that was mostly over to the right of where Mairead was sitting, she uh, uh, reminded people that this was the European Parliament, not the House of Commons, uh, which uh, went down very well in a lot of quarters, I have to say. Uh, you did look slightly peeved that day, Marie. <laughs> but it's a brilliant, it's on YouTube and it's brilliant. Anyway, uh, <laughs> on that note, I am delighted to welcome one of Ireland's foremost politicians and, and a, a strong presence for this country in the European Parliament and a dedicated and committed European, Reid McGuinness. Thank you very much for that. I want to put my hands up and say I was provoked. It had been brewing for some time. The word rubbish was being hurled at me during various debates by one gentleman, and I really thought this has got to stop. And actually, it sounds like it's funny, but it was a very much a sign of how things are. Um, that somebody can just throw the word rubbish in and, um, you know, I think really pull down a parliament um, and not respect it. So that's why I did what I did. I've had another one since, by the way, which should be on YouTube. There was another of that said division um, screeching at me. Um, what did I do on that occasion? Oh, yes, there was an altercation between somebody from the far right and Mr. Verhofstadt, who's not shy in these matters. And I was trying to calm them down a bit. And one lady was screaming at me about, say that when you're on the BBC or whatever. And I said very cheekily, I can hear you, but I'd rather not listen to you because I have to chair votes. So they're the fun times in the chair in the parliament. But in a way, being in the hot seat there, lets you look at how politics is fragmenting and how it's become a stage where um, the parliament is now a YouTube moment or a Facebook moment, a video, as opposed to being a chamber for debate. And if you have a very definite view, you get attention. And the louder the voice, the greater the view. Um, so I think that um, it has reflected itself in the Brexit happening. So just a few points on that. Um, when I look back over how and why it happened, to some extent I think we were all remiss 
because we were getting on with the job. I think there comes a time in life when getting on with the job isn't enough. You have to look at this bigger, broader happening. Um, you have to get a sense, of, a feeling of, of things going wrong and deal with that, not just get on with the job. Um, so we allowed various voices in the European Parliament not only to um, have a Brexit vote which went in their direction to their surprise, um, but they're also hell-bent on breaking up the European Union. So don't forget that piece of this story because that is still... Um, a part of the agenda. Um, and Europe is imperfect, so I'm not here to defend it and call it glowing and that everybody, everything works perfectly. But as I said to a group of 10 and 11-year-olds just before I came here, and they got it really well, you know, for a small country, it's pretty cool to be around the table and you're equal and you have a voice and you can use that voice for good or for ill. So when Brexit happened, there was an enormous angry reaction. I think a lot of members were just angry and frustrated. I'm not so sure that anyone fully understood what it would mean in terms of the energy it's taking from the whole political system, the focus on this issue, um, but also that Europe is getting on with other things. And that's where Ireland needs to be conscious of, that Brexit isn't the only show in town. There's lots of other issues, whether it's migration, security, um, you know, completing the banking union. All these things are still happening. Um, so that's something we should really be aware of. And I have to say, I've never watched as much of the House of Commons as I've done in the last while. I mean, it's, you, you actually put it on on your iPhone because it's, it's been gripping. It's been disturbing. But it's also reflecting um, the divisions in British society. I think really well, that across the House and within parties, the views are you know, very strong on either side, or they're, they're moving. There's a shifting sand. Um, and you know, when this started and the Prime Minister was in place, she did say no to a lot of things. I mean, the money was up for doubt, the citizens' rights weren't quite so certain, and then the Irish question just was there without people understanding how it would be resolved. And then we came to an agreement. It took some time, um, and as you know now, the House of Commons have not approved it. Our challenge is that it is rejected by those who want a hard Brexit and by those who don't want Brexit. And the trouble for Europe is, how are we ever going to have something that we know for certain will get through the House of Commons? So now we have this interesting flowchart of March the 12th, the 13th, whatever, as to what, you know, if A happens, B might follow. Um, and people are predicting an extension of Article 50. I had a really nice meeting this week in the Parliament with the president of the Welsh Farmers Union, who has a better idea. He wants Article 50 to be revoked. I thought it was kind of clever. It won't happen, but I thought it was clever because you don't need permission because the ECJ have said you can revoke it. You're not saying that you're not leaving. You're just not doing it then, and you can re-invoke it at some stage. So I don't think Europe would watch that, but it was an interesting um, position. And this is their public position. And the Welsh Farmers Union lobbied for farmers to vote to stay in the European Union. Other farmers unions across the UK were a bit more silent. Um, and others have referred earlier to the fact that the Ulster Farmers Union now like the withdrawal agreement because they want this much closer relationship. Um, so what will happen? Uh, most people are predicting an extension. But I, I have to say that an extension, just because we can't sort it now, won't sort it at the end of the extension. And therefore, I think we have to be very certain that there is movement. Um, the best hope we would have is that 
Finally, there will be a vote in favour of the withdrawal agreement, but that there would need, we would need to give the UK more time to bring in the legislation and all that goes with it. And I think if people request an extension in that context, there would be no difficulty with that. Where it gets tricky is where um, everything's rejected again and an extension is looked for, and it's finite because of the complications of the European Parliament elections, are we any more certain that things will change in that time? And also at the moment, a lot of members of Parliament, including myself, it is really an election period now. So we're trying to finish a lot of business of the House. We're focusing on what's happening in our own uh, elections in our own member states. And I don't think people want the complications of an extended Brexit to be overhanging all of this. Um, and equally, there is mixed legal opinion, which is you know, the beauty of lawyers is that they have different views around whether um, the United Kingdom would need to have elections to the European Parliament. Some would say that if the UK are still members in May, when the elections are happening, then they should, um, under legislation, be required to have an election. And there would be citizens in the UK who might take a legal challenge and insist on elections being held. The difficulty for the Parliament is that while we'd love the UK to stay, there are certain members of the House that we'd rather say goodbye to. And one of them in particular is gearing up for European elections because he really wants to come back to the European Parliament because I suppose it allows him to continue his work. So the politics are a little bit tricky. I suppose my last remark before you can put comments and questions is what about the wider politics of what's going on and how do we make progress at EU level? Because there are other member states have all sorts of issues and complications. Um, and the one positive out of Brexit is that it has shown a lot of citizens and indeed um, parliamentarians what Europe means, what the single market is, how the customs union works and what free movement entails. So I think the conversations about that detail have been really helpful. Um, and actually when I go to schools, I did two school visits today, one in Hedford with um, the Presentation College and you would be so proud of these young people who, who get the whole European thing. You know, they had questions about the far right and all sorts of issues to raise, but they understand the concept of Europe. And then with these class of 10 and 11-year-olds, I mean, it was just lovely to hear them. They're going through the Blue Star program, which is talking about Europe. And we need much more of that. And they challenged me to talk to Minister Joe McHugh about making sure that history and geography stay very much front and centre of the course. And I actually support them in that. Um, so so when we move into this election cycle, there's all sorts of predictions about how the European Parliament will look, who will be in it. Will there be a balance of power on the right and left that nothing can happen, so the centre will not be as strong? Um, and I'm not so sure yet how that will um, develop or what sort of Parliament we will have. We will have to deal with whatever is there. Um, uh, you know, I, I've actually had hoped earlier on that there would be a second referendum in the United Kingdom and change things. I'm not of that view now. I have a sense in which we have passed over that moment. Um, and also it is for the UK to make that decision rather than us suggesting that it would happen. On the other hand, the Labour Party leader has just said he would support a second referendum and it might be possible within a few months. Um, I, I just would worry that the, the, the fractures are so deep in British society that it would be a very unpleasant campaign again I think um, and therefore that is perhaps why the British Prime Minister is unable to um, even think in that direction but goodness me who would have predicted that we'd have um, such a a difficult house of commons uh, that parliament that we're all glued to is unable to decide 
um, two steps together and be coherent. Um, there's certainly certainty about what they don't want in different camps, but there isn't a great deal of certainty about what they want. So then we have to look to the future. You know, if all goes well and, and the deal is ratified, I think the real challenge is the next phase of this, you know, close partnership. However, there would be a huge amount of relief and goodwill could we sign off on the withdrawal agreement. And I would hope that then people, UK side of the negotiations, would realise that they built up the European Union. They were part of a lot of the really good stuff that's there around chemicals, around um, food issues, around medicines, and even the university sector and research, that they would want to embrace um, a, a close relationship <laughs> But there are others who don't want that. And I suppose the more I talk to people on the hard Brexit side, the more I have to kind of question myself and almost throw water over my head because they have a view, which I think you have to un try and understand. Um, they really feel trapped by the European Union. They see us as almost, you know, um, curtailing their brilliance and their capacity to be great on the world stage. And I don't think we can dismiss that either because it is there. It's a very passionately held view. Whereas I think when you're from a small nation, I'm very passionate about the fact that, well, you know, I'm elected first vice president of the parliament. We're only 11 out of 571. It meant that we must have done something right to get that level of support. Whereas, you know, on the UK side, they've never quite managed that. There's a lot of them in the European Parliament. What struck me as incredible, because I've done a lot of British media, is that very, very few British MEPs have been on British media. There's been one or two prominent, but usually on the uh, Brexit side. And, you know, I've seen the statistics, and it is true that they just have not had a presence. So that, I think, has fed into why we're in the situation today. But I think Europe has to learn lessons from it, too, not to just dismiss it as a British issue. Um, and I suppose when I'm with academics, I think that, you know, we need to get over the silos of all our expertise. I still believe in experts own, by the way, because I think, you know, they were dismissed sometimes, but they're helpful on occasion. We need a psychologists and sociologists to help us in politics. Uh, that's for me the biggest thing, that how do you get people to, even on climate issues and farmers, and how do you get people to come with you on a journey rather than saying we're doing this and they say no we're not. And I think that's been a lot of, so I, when I grow up and win 175 million on the lotto, <laughs> will retire to academia and do a PhD in all of this stuff because I think we need it. And I think we need it in a world where everybody has instant media and has instant opinions and I you know relish the moment when I throw the phone away and get into a huddle with a group of people and I argue and I change my mind and that's okay to do it because unfortunately going back to my opening point at which I will end the world seems to be um, now in favor of you're against or you're for something very few people value compromise and understanding. And yet it is the only way that the world and humanity has ever progressed, that you live with that ability to find the good in everything and make it work. Those are my opening remarks. I will take comments rather than questions, but both. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Maria. Thank you. And I'm going to uh, throw that open to the floor in a second, but I wanted to throw one question at you first. Um, one of the contrasts that I noticed in the two referenda that were held in the UK or part of the UK in 2014 and 2016 was that in Scotland they announced it and they took two years to debate it inside out, left, right and centre. Mm. 
And the percentage has shifted quite significantly in those two years. I think support for independence was 25% at the start, it was 45% at the end, but nobody could say they didn't know what they were voting for. David Cameron announced a referendum and three months later they had a vote and then they worked out afterwards what it meant. Yeah. There's some kind of lesson in that, quite aside from the fact that some people would say referendum are what you shouldn't have in a democracy. But even if you are going to, is there some kind of lesson in that? Yeah. Well, remember, the reason why the referendum was held was not for the good of the nation. It was for the Tory party to try and find itself again and come to a, an agreement on Europe. Um, David Cameron also uh, looked to Europe for some compromises, which he got, and then they were completely irrelevant in the referendum campaign. But he did it at a time when the migration crisis was really pertinent, and there wasn't enough political space to give to his issues. And he went out and campaigned, and I watched the campaign, even when the sleeves were rolled up, I felt it lacked the emotion of those who were urging people to vote to leave Europe. It didn't have the passion, um, it didn't have the bus with the money on it. it, it just said, well, we're economically better off, which I think today, if you don't have a passion about your politics, the money won't see you through. Um, you know, the people don't usually vote only on logic, they vote on emotions. Um, and I think in terms of the referendum campaign, which was horrific when we look back at it, it was quite a, a poisonous campaign to some extent. I predicted that they would vote to leave. I remember being on a radio station that night and they said it, you know, that Nigel Farage had conceded that they would stay and I said, no, they're going to vote to leave. And I went to bed and I woke up and, and the worst had happened. But, you know, Europe and, and, you know, even the Parliament, we hadn't quite taken on board what that would mean. But indeed, the UK hadn't at all considered what it would mean. And that's why there's been this floundering over such a long period. Uh, the tragedy is that the British Prime Minister announced her strategy at a party conference aimed at the party, not the country. And therefore, um, if you draw red lines and you do it very publicly, even though you know that they're the wrong shade of red and they need to be erased, it's difficult politically to do it. Um, and and I, that's been... the the scenario since this uh, started. Just in terms of the, the um, requirement for members like myself and others, uh, I, I joined the Constitutional Affairs Committee because it's dealing with Brexit. And we have meetings all the time with all sorts of people. With the Welsh Farmers Union, we had MPs from Wales. Um, we have youth groups from Northern Ireland because I felt it's really important that we engage with everybody. And particularly groups from Northern Ireland that don't have an assembly. They don't have that capacity to have their voice heard. Um, so I often wondered what I did in my spare time because this has taken up a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of time. And some of the conversations I've had with British colleagues have been very tough, really, really tough, because I tend to be of the view that there's no point in having a cup of tea and being nice if there's something we've got to say to each other as colleagues. We have to say it, even where it's tough. And in terms of this overall, uh, this conference of British-Irish relationships, you know, I think good relationships can withstand that type of issue because uh, what I discovered, I got elected in 2004. Jim Nicholson, who's the Ulster Farmers Union, would be a friend of mine. I've learned a lot from him. He's experienced. Diane Dodds is also on, on the Agriculture Committee with me. Um, and the tragedy is that once you are on different sides, then you look for the differences to be greater than they are. Um, and I suppose that's happening in Northern Ireland. People are going into the, the respective camps. Questions? Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. Ray, 
First of all, thanks very much indeed for hosting Jim and I and the Ulster Unionist Group. And that was indeed, we really appreciated the fact that you told it as it was, yeah. rather than people wanted to hear it, which I thought was very useful. But my question is more about the way direction Europe is going. And I was quite recently at an event where I surprised to be listening to a Spanish political party that was basically phalangist. I was speaking to Italians who are quite a long way right. And the fact that looking at sort of polling that's likely to happen in this forthcoming European Parliament election, I am really concerned about the nature and the shape of the way Europe is shifting and moving. And as you, and you know, you're quite rightly looked at as somebody who holds the centre and holds the centre to be true. But there are real issues going forward. And I'm not hearing any message coming across from Europe that's attempting to deal with these issues. And you know, let's accept the fact the United Kingdom's leaving. So we want to be good friends with yeah. Europe. We want to be able to have influence within the European Parliament. The European Parliament, just looking from what I've seen, is changing quite strangely. Can you give us just your views? And I know you alluded to it, but, mm. you know, uh, I think, and because, I'm telling this to you because you are a straight speaker, mm. and you know some of the kind of likely sort of groups that are likely to come into it. Yeah. How are we going to be able to square that with the kind of realism that we need to have in relationships going forward. Okay, I suppose the, the upside of that is that usually those groups on the far right fall out with themselves. So they fracture themselves constantly. They reorganise and, and... So they're not a steady force. They're just against what everybody else might be in favour of. And if we're um, against something, they'll be in favour. It's just that disruptive force. Some people like that in politics. You can't ignore that they get voted and elected in. They tend to not work in committees very well, so they're not engaged in the detail. So, I mean, you could become completely overwhelmed by they'll take over the parliament and it'll all be Armageddon. It's only a five-year term, so the, the worst that could happen is that very little will get done. But that mightn't be so bad because maybe we'll cement down what's there and get on with it. Um, so I, I would take more that it is definitely going to be a challenge, both on their extreme left and the extreme yeah, right. Yeah. But because they tend, I suppose it's like independents who are elected and then they come into a group, but they might have very little in common and they can fall out very easily. We've had those scenarios. I mean, look at UKIP. I can't remember who's in charge now, or, or, or there's new parties, you know, because they are, I suppose, individually, um, like they've succeeded, which we shouldn't ignore either, but they're very strong individually, so they don't do the group thing very well. Whereas, I suppose, the centre realises that in order to get something through, we have to work with the socialists or the liberals, and, and sometimes with the ECR, to have that combination. Um, I'm not as pessimistic. I think we might still be able to have that centre. Right. Yeah, but I have to say, I think one of the things that members of the European Parliament who believe in Europe, not, not in some religious zealous way, but because I don't like the alternative. So I think it's worth protecting because the alternative for me is not, not very good. We have to work harder. So my job today was, was great to come here, but I made sure I went to schools beforehand. I've just mentioned that. And you talk to teachers, and you, I'm going to a, a farmer's meeting after this at 8.30 in Kilcarran. It'll be a smaller group. But I think if we don't do that on-the-ground work, then don't be surprised that people feel disconnected from the European Parliament or that Brussels is a problem to them. The trouble is that lots of members of the European Parliament are on a list system. 
which I probably would love because I wouldn't have the trauma of, of you know, campaigning. But on the other hand, it makes us more real to our voters, I hope, that we are on the ground. So I'm away two or three, well, three or four days a week, but Friday, Saturday, I'm with, I, I cover 15 counties now, but I try and get out and that, that my presence is felt. And I think that while social media will help us you know, spread that, I really am a strong believer in the personal contact and engagement. And I'm always really impressed when I, you know, I might meet somebody like years later, I might have forgotten where and when we had a conversation, but they'll remember it or, you know, the young person will recall it. And also, you know, this generation I spoke to today, they're voting very soon. They were very tuned in in this secondary school to the far right questions, to climate change and what might be done and migration. The, the primary school I visited had several different nationalities and it was fascinating to hear them, you know, speak up on these issues. So, you know, you can be disruptive for a long time, and what it might do is uh, delay progress, uh, but it also might let Europe settle. And I think that the reality of the European Union is that each member state has different political colours depending on elections that ebb and flow. So you're never going to have constant uh, movement forward. I think it's more a meandering of. So some people in Ireland, you know, weren't as in love with Europe until Brexit happened and now are more tuned into it. I think we're still quite critical, which is good to have a critical look at it. Uh, others are worried about, uh, you know, a federal Europe and an army uh, and things like that, which some people have an aspiration for, but which most people realise is not even on, on the cards. Um, so I'm not as pessimistic. Um, and also sometimes those who have a, a sharp bark, their bite is, is kind of weak. Um, but, for example, if the UK have elections again, it will be interesting to see how many Brexit uh, members might be re-elected. Maybe not, you know. Um, and I, I have to say on the record that a lot of the British MEPs that I have worked with are brilliant. You know, I referenced Jim Nicholson. Um, there was others I worked with on medical devices issues, on climate issues, and they're really good colleagues. And we will miss their presence. I mean, I think as an Irish MEP, we will miss their presence. We'll have to just refocus our efforts. Dan? Yeah, thank you very much. And just to say that I mean, your public comments, your willingness to be interviewed in extremely difficult circumstances has, been a, has made tremendous contributions. I just wanted to say that. My question, maybe it's my, my accent will give away the direction I'm going in. I'm just wondering about the role of the U.S. in all of this and whether you know, the Trump administration seems to be hell-bent on destruction in a variety of areas and doesn't seem to be any friend of the European Union. Um, not that it's a necessary friend of anything else. Um, does that, in what way does that impinge on the activities of the European Parliament at the moment in this mm. process, or, or is it just something that can be kind of ignored? No, you can't ignore it. Um, but we have good relationships with, um, maybe not always with the president at that level, but we have strong contacts. Um, I chair uh, an EU-US for the EPP group, so we would have strong contacts. I think we're going through a moment in time, um, so I never despair that this is it forever, because it's never that. Um, so it may be, as I've just suggested, that we're, we're in this kind of uh, disruptive phase where a lot of people are anxious, because I think the economic crash really had an impact on, on a lot of people, and it's still lingering there, uh, you know, in the background. Um, I think there is also this take back control, you know, great nations, um, you know, powerful individually. I think the US narrative is very much that. Um, and therefore, it's harder for Europe because we're not one nation, we're a collective. Um, but I think that, I mean, President Juncker seems to have had a good chat with President uh, Trump some months back. 
Um, so I'm, I'm not too despairing of it. Um, I just think that we have to be very conscious that uh, not to be overwhelmed by what is negative at the moment and to give in to it. And that we use our voice, and I was saying this even to the children, that you can either be very you know, um, disruptive in how you uh, get involved in conversations or you can be helpful. Um, so I, I would think that when, the, you know, at the top level it looks a bit tricky with the relationships. When I talk to the ambassador and he comes to my office in Brussels, it's not, it's, it's absolutely fine. Um, trade is a big issue. Trade protectionism is on the rise and for Ireland that is a, a problem for us to deal with. Even though in Ireland, you know, there can be opposition to trade agreements. It's, it's always interesting uh, that people are politically, um, even though we're a trading nation, are opposed to these uh, trade relationships for, for all sorts of different reasons. And so, I mean, I'm an optimist at heart, and sometimes I think that in the end things do work out, but you've to, the path towards them are difficult. And even with Brexit, um, you know, because the House of Commons has been unable to say what it wants, I think that eventually it will want what we've just heard there, a very close relationship. Because why would it want to reinvent a medicines agency, um, a chemicals agency, write different rules? Some do want that, just for the sake of being different. The one area that's not in the political declaration that I am concerned about is the European Food Safety Agency. It's not there as being one of the agencies that the UK wants to stay close with, which would concern me just for the future. And I think from an island point of view as well, and, and the agriculture economy, that would be uh, something of concern. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Very interesting comments you made earlier as well. Um, it's likely that after any Brexit, especially if there's a hard Brexit shortly, we could quite suddenly find ourselves with almost a million Irish and European citizens uh, in the six counties. Mm. What can you do for them? Well, that's the big question that is there in lights, and we don't have a clear answer because they have rights. But how are we going to defend those rights? Um, but I think it came up on Clare Byrne when I was on recently, and we have a duty because they're Irish citizens or they have Irish passports and they have rights as, therefore as European Union citizens. That's not worked through at all, but it's certainly an issue that we all know has to be dealt with. Um, so come back to me maybe when all this is over and we can see how we've done it. Nobody quite knows how, but it has to be done. Yep. Uh, following up on the first speaker there, perhaps from a German perspective, the scenario of a far-right presence yeah. in the parliament is very real. Uh, particularly since the last um, elections in Germany. So, but coming back to, to these divisions that have already been uh, established by you on Brexit and the partisan issues, is there perhaps also a sense, because that's uh, the case for Germans, I guess, is that um, Britain has always been kind of the red line in the European Parliament, and they're now about to leave. Mm. So there might be a shift in the direction of the European Union where basically in this moment of opportunity we can forge ahead and take a different direction. So I guess what I'm asking is, is there this sense of we can do something new now without the counterbalance of the UK? Yeah, I think that there is that narrative that because the, you know, the UK might have put brakes on certain things, that there are policy areas that we can move on with. But then we'd have to make sure that at council level and indeed in the parliament that there is support for that. We're still having this debate about the future of Europe <coughs> and the direction of travel. And I don't think it's quite settled yet. Um, and therefore, at times of elections, people have all of these conversations. Um, what I've tried to say is that at least we have Europe. 
you know, it's there. I mean, the institutions are there. I think the UK has suddenly understood that, my God, if we were to recreate those ourselves, how costly would that be? Um, and also the value of working with other countries is, is an imperative. So I think it is a possibility that um, without the UK, things might move on. But I still think that in, in all of these things, slow, progress is slow. Uh, and I think that's no harm. You know, I don't think we need any overwhelming change of direction at this moment. I think Europe needs to settle down in the post-Brexit era and find how we um, have that close relationship with the United Kingdom. What troubles me is that we're going to have to set up some sort of committee, you know, structure to have that. And if ever that was like more bureaucracy on, on top of existing, that bothers me a little from a, a practical point of view. But we are going to have to do it. And for Ireland particularly... Um, I think we underestimate the value of meeting colleagues in the lift or at coffee. That kind of network is invaluable. The people you might have had a view of, when you meet them over coffee, you realise actually they're kind of, they're not what you thought at all. When that is gone, when the UK is not part of that informal network in the European Parliament or a council, that's a huge gap to fill. And I think from an Irish point of view, we're going to have to find ways to do both the formal level and the informal, because I found in my work in the Parliament, we do the formal stuff and it's really important, but actually it's the relationships you have with people that support you on things, and that relationship happens when you're on mission together or you're having a cup of coffee or you speak to their um, visitor group, and you know the UK will not be part of that, and I think they will miss it as well. I think it's a huge gap. Yes, up at the back. Hello, uh, my name is Catherine Morris. Um, I teach in this glorious, beautiful Adonikey Centre. Um, and it's it's so funny to kind of look at uh, the set that, that you're in at the moment. Because it's a play. I mean, I teach a lot of European uh, theatre. And it's a play that is about the murder of a journalist um, who is pushed through that window uh, by the police and then it's about the cover-up around yeah. it. Um, I recently gave a talk in Valletta where, in fact, a journalist had been. Um, That's right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm because of her part in the Panama mm. Papers, a, a situation that's still kind of ongoing. Mm. Um, and at, at the moment, um, I'm writing a lot about, I mean, my question is really around culture. Uh, I'm writing about um, in 2004 when Ireland held the presidency, when there were uh, the, the kind of post. Um, Eastern Bloc countries were coming in to Europe at that moment, and Seamus Heaney uh, did a version of um, Antigone, which is about feminism and human rights and solidarity, and he at Burial of Thebes at the National Theatre in Ireland. And in all of the kind of the opening and the surrounding of this moment of, of, of Ireland holding that European presidency there, one of, the, um, one of the debates that happened around that theatre production um, and that was raised by the Polish ambassador to Ireland at the time was uh, a sense of, of, of failure around culture. Um, that actually, if, it had, if the European project had begun with the idea of cultural solidarity and a commitment to engagement at that level, uh, you know, perhaps something else would have emerged mm -hmm. and something other. Um, and actually when you look back at those founding docu documents in that post-war moment in the founding of the College of Europe or in those incredible statements 
um, about the central role that, that, that culture should have in the formation of a union. Mm. Um, it, it, it seems that something, certainly for me, in my perspective, I'm from Liverpool and that voted for 84% to, to remain. I mean, it, it, it's it, the devastating <coughs> impact um, to, you know, to, to be in a, in a space where actually those, those kind of European solidarities are being dismantled mm. and racism uh, increased at the same time. Yeah. But the culture really did have a major role. Yeah, I think you're bang on the money. I think that if you only are in it for the money, it's not enough. I think there has to be an emotional, cultural um, space, you know, in this whole European project. Um, and maybe that was forgotten about because of the crash. I really do think the economic crash had quite a, an impact on people's psychology, and that's why we've ended up today. You mentioned the murder of journalists. I met the parents of that um, woman who was killed in Malta. Um, and, you know, that is a big issue. It's, she's not the only one who suffered for her task. There's been quite a few murders uh, of journalists. Um, and there are voices uh, in Europe, some of them very close to, to where I sit, that are not, you know, about a free media. So there's a lot of things happening in Europe that we need to be conscious and careful of, um, that we stand, we, ha we defend the values that we espouse. Um, some people would say that maybe the enlargement that happened in 04 was too much too soon and it's hard to settle things down, which is why even in the midst of the possibility of a very fractured parliament, it may be time for things that might settle down. Um, and the parliament does have more power now, but I also think that it has more responsibility as well. And those of us who are trying to get on with it, try and you know speak to that, because many of those who are, you know, not interested in the European project, they only come in to vote so that it's on the record as opposed to um, wanting to be engaged in the debate. But maybe, I mean, people who are involved in culture, it was mentioned in the previous panel that the humanities are hugely important. And I think it speaks to that point that you've raised as well. I think you took me on a theatre class here with some other colleagues from... Yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah, you Yes, and I have my badge in my ba bag. And they, I met with your, the uh, Galway 2020 colleagues this week in Brussels. So, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff happening. And I'm hoping, I said it to them, that one of the things I'd like to do, if I'm re-elected, is have a, an exhibition of Galway in the European Parliament. The other thing that I think, and I've said it to my own party, uh, and I've spoken to the Taoiseach about this, that we have to be prepared to send members of the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, to committees in Brussels to engage more and to have voices there. Because I think we take it for granted that actually it's not important, it's another meeting. It's, it's absolutely vital. Um, and we have to be prepared to go to other member states. And, and one of the challenges, I think, for us is that we have enjoyed solidarity from the rest of Europe on, on our issue. There's no doubt about that. And I often say to groups, so will we have the same spirit of solidarity for another member state with a particular issue? Will we invest in their concern as much? Because I think that is how it works. It's a two-way thing. Um, and I have been quite taken aback by the number of uh, prime ministers and deputy prime ministers and opposition leaders that have come to my office or come to the border and really want to know the issue. And also, which you know, blew me away, um, because I am responsible for relations with national parliaments. And I was in uh, when the Austrian presidency had an event in Vienna, and at the table were two EPP colleagues from Austria that had been in Belfast when they were students. 
and understood things that I had read about, but they were there for us. We underestimate how a lot of political groups were quite engaged in the whole Northern Ireland issue, and, and they do get it. Um, and they certainly don't want to disrupt uh, what we have today in terms of that piece. And I suppose what's always, uh, I always, you know, kind of read the middle ground. I get quite a lot of emails from people who wouldn't ring a radio station or wouldn't publicly speak out. And what they're saying is they're concerned about a feeling that's happening. You know, this people retreating back to an identity politics again. And, you know, that was moving and we were moving away from that. And I think, you know, we have to be just very mindful. Do the last two questions, to some extent, speak to one of the key issues for the Remain campaign in the UK <laughs> referendum? That uh, beyond the economic benefits, there was no really persuasive definition of what the European project was about. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. that, in fact, if we settle for the, the twin pillars of let's not have world wars again, uh, which is, you know, if, if you, and, and the economic rationale, the, you know, the European coal and steel community, that economic cooperation would help us not go to war with each mm. other, that it actually needs a cultural definition beyond that. Yeah, because there's a whole generation who kind of, you know, they've read about it and know about it, but it's yeah. not quite the same. So, yeah, I think we do need a new narrative um, for what Europe is. Um, and I think some of the challenges that Europe faces around migration and an ageing demographic and all of that, that's feeding into a, sometimes I think a sense of insecurity in, in the wider world. Um, and we haven't found the narrative yet. Yeah. And we're, we're quite good at technical stuff and uh, we've allowed this, you know, bureaucrats to be almost hounded out of existence. So I think we have to change some of that. Even when, I mean, farmers, and I'll be meeting them later, will be given out about rules and regulations. But actually now the farmers in Northern Ireland want to stick with those rules and regulations because it means that you can trade. Um, so that they're there for a reason. So I suppose as a former journalist, um, you know, bad news sells and the narrative about a big nasty Brussels and removed from um, the real world. For example, I got an email to say, you get paid every time you're on British television, it's a disgrace. I don't, and I wouldn't take it anyway. So, but people have a perception that we're all out for ourselves and we're not. I mean, there are a lot of people in the parliament who do worry about the future uh, in as much as I do as well, not only for myself, but I have four children. Um, and I realise that it, it is imperfect and always will be. And therefore, I think those who believe that perfection, it shouldn't, if it doesn't work properly, we should leave. I think, no, no, you don't. You fix it, you tweak it all the time. Um, it's a bit like how our own politics works at local and at national level. And it's, it's not perfect and it cannot be because it's a human construct. But it has to be more than about money. And one of the things that troubled me before the Brexit vote was when I'd meet groups coming to the Parliament and I'd say that, look, Ireland will be a net contributor. It is now marginally a net contributor. There was a sense of, oh, I didn't sign up for that. I thought we were getting the money, not giving it. And you'd kind of unfold the arms and say, well, hold on a minute. Like, you know, we're there a while. There's a great pride, too, in being able to help others. Um, but, you know, that takes a while to kind of settle in. We're all kind of selfish human beings. So sometimes it's kind of good to burst that bubble, that there's a reason why it is good to be able to contribute. When I talk to UK colleagues who believe that uh, the money should be spent in the UK, it's a very different story. And I had a kind of an interesting experience. One of the Welsh uh, colleagues um, was a Brexiteer. And actually, sometimes you have to look into the whites of people's eyes to realise that he really doesn't trust Europe. I mean, it was like a, it was quite a moment. 
doesn't trust me, didn't trust Europe, doesn't trust the Irish, that we're all out to trap the United Kingdom and the European Union. And honestly, while that might have been something that people thought about immediately after the referendum, it certainly is not the case now. What I detect from my colleagues in the Parliament is, please, get this done. Let us settle down to find a new path together. The UK can't drift off from where it is geographically located, nor will it stop eating cheddar cheese or beef, because it'll be hard to get it immediately elsewhere. Uh, and somebody did raise an interesting question about, is it a time to take stock? For a lot of supply chain uh, management, a lot of companies have actually found a benefit in looking at where are we getting the cartons from? Why were we doing that? So there, I wouldn't think it's all been a lose, uh, lose at the moment. It has actually refocused people on looking at their business um, path. And I think in, even in the agri-food sector, people would, would... I mean, you have to change direction when the wind changes. Um, I mean, I, I certainly hope we don't have a no deal. And the more that I listen to what came out of the House of Commons this week, I, I can't see that happening. But, you know, write that down and tell me I'm wrong when it happens. But, I mean, I, I might change my mind next week when I talk to others. It's been that kind of time um, that you go from optimism to sheer, you know, just rejection uh, when you meet people who uh, just... Did never, they never understood what Europe was about or how it works. Um, so the idea that some of them had in their minds was that Angela Merkel would actually call Theresa May and say, here's the deal, we need to keep our car parts and everything moving. And as Elmer Brox keeps saying, that is not going to happen. Because I think the realisation is that even if it was a crash out, to concede like that would really fragment the entire European Union and while there are different voices and different views around that table, nobody wants to see that happen. Yeah. Question up here. Um, Wayne, thank you so much for all the work you've done. Um, I do hope that you win the lottery because we'd love you to win the Queen's and we're pretty pleased with the lottery. I'll go. Um, the question is quite simple and complicated at the same time. Can you imagine any scenario in which UK MEPs will sit? Well, first of all, I have to buy the lot of ticket before I win it, so that might be a start uh, and then go to Queen's. The second thing is I can envisage it, actually. I can. I mean, I had a conversation with Nigel Farage, and he says, 50-50 chance I'll be back in the European Parliament. And I said, well, I'd love the UK to say it, but I don't want you back. And he was fine. I mean, we know each other, so it was fine. Um, but I think he does want to come back. I mean, there are several reasons, because he's had such a good time you know, in the sense of not delivering, but delivering what he wanted. Um, and I think he would use it in a way which those of us in the parliament would not like to give him the oxygen to do. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't dismiss it at all. I've had this conversation with others as well. If there's an extension, and I would, where I think the challenge will come is people who want to remain, UK citizens who want to remain in Europe would say we should have elections. And if the courts were so, to so decide then that shakes up our problem with two extra seats and all that goes with it here. So it, it would be quite disruptive, but it's not impossible to consider that. Some people are suggesting maybe roll over the current members, that they would continue to sit until Brexit happens. Um, but given the events this week, I, kind of, I, I just don't know anymore. You know, I just don't know. What I think we have to keep doing, though, is being very clear about we have agreed this with the British Prime Minister and her team, we did it because we tried all other options. Um, it is good for citizens. We have certainty around finance. 
and, we, and the Irish question, and the more important piece, we have time to transition. Now, whether that's sufficient time, I don't know, but at least we have that time to transition. Unfortunately, that kind of politics doesn't sit well with people who believe that it was like cutting the umbilical cord and just that we get out and we'd be gone and that Europe would be, you know, it was, it, there is that mentality that that's how it would happen. And I don't dismiss people of that view. I think you have to understand why they think that way um, and be aware that in your argumentation that you're calm and logical and stick to the points that you hold dear to um, and on the renegotiation, because even when I'm interviewed on programs, they say, well, you know, you will give in or you will renegotiate. There, there's no sign of the EU27 reopening. Apparently, there is something floating which would be an addition to what's currently there because Europe can find creative solutions, and let's hope they do. Neil. Yeah, and are there voices in the Parliament saying, well, let's... Let's give more on the withdrawal agreement. We were too tough on the British. We need to maybe um, give some ground on this, and that will permit a solution. Do you see any sort of groundswell around that? No, I see the opposite. Um, I quite see the opposite. I see people saying, well, actually, we have to stick with this agreement because we're not getting clarity in terms of the numbers from the House of Commons. So I haven't uh, seen that at all. Um, and I think the more that there is that uncertainty, the more we have to be certain that, look, we have negotiated. Uh, we very sharp people who are doing these negotiations on both sides. They looked at alternative arrangements. You know, those who say, you know, we want alternative arrangements to the backstop haven't printed them or they haven't been tested. So honestly, there hasn't been that. I mean, I thought it might happen that people might say, oh, should go on, you know, the, but no, it, it actually hasn't. Um, because I don't think that, or rather I put it this way, that we'd, we're not certain that whatever we might tweak would be acceptable in the House of Commons. Yeah, okay. yeah, just following up on that, just comment and then a question. I mean, everything that's been discussed in the House of Commons is basically, basically evidence for the fact that we need the press because they're yeah. so undecided that nobody can trust them. Sorry, but, I mean, that's the feeling I get. Um, Maybe on the unity in the EU27 that you've alluded to, uh, certainly I feel it's remarkable, um, the unity that's been displayed. And could you maybe talk about the Irish effort in kind of raising the Irish issue um, kind of to the forefront, the work that Irish MEPs but also maybe diplomats have done? Because when I was in Brussels, uh, after, immediately after the vote in 2016 and also after the triggering of the Article 50, there wasn't really a sense that this would become the premier issue for in the Brexit negotiations, but it certainly has become that. And you could argue that the Irish have uh, a funny twist of history, kind of old Britain in their hands now, rather on this issue. So could you maybe talk about your efforts and the efforts of other Irish MPs? Um, yeah, I suppose it's an interesting time historically because, you know, we're, we're commemorating 100 years of the Irish Parliament. Um, I remember being on question time and saying to this audience that I, what I couldn't understand was why a great nation like the United Kingdom um, are so um, uncertain about themselves as a nation that they're fighting each other and they're fighting Europe. I, I still think that's a question that I want to do the PhD on, to just understand why that happens. In terms of the effort that's been made, it's been phenomenal. Because, um, I mean, I'm uh, drinking water and I'm hoarse because of all of the, the engagements I've had, and I've turned down no meeting, wherever small or large, 
Um, and much of it has been very private conversations, just to, so people understand. The diplomatic effort has been huge. My colleague Helen McEntee has done a fantastic job. She's in, um, I think, Latvia today. Um, Simon Coveney, I think, has been particularly um, strong and clear. The Taoiseach, the same. Um, so I think that it's been a collective uh, movement, um, it, but it has taken a lot of time and energy, and that, that's why I worry about the other stuff that needs attention as well. You know, you can only split yourself several several different directions. I thought that the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, was the most direct, as they tend to be, when he said, you know, basically at, at the weekend, just, you know, cut a deal and get on with it. Uh, very pragmatic. Um, so the solidarity has been strong. There were one or two voices occasionally that you know, suggested a change, but, but not to any great extent. And I think it's because it was, first of all, um, a jolt to the system that Brexit happened. I think because there were so many moments of going this direction and that direction and we weren't paying and we will pay and we might pay and, and red lines that once a deal was struck, it was hard won much of it fashioned by the British Prime Minister herself uh, in terms of the Irish question, that there was simply no reason to reopen it because there was no magical solution elsewhere. And if you listen and read very carefully the, the Prime Minister's speech in Belfast, I thought it was a very interesting speech where she said that the Northern Ireland did not need Europe or the Irish government to ensure no hard border that the British government would make sure of that and that she would not allow it happen. And yet, somewhere else in the speech, there was a line directly contradicting that because she wanted legally binding changes to the backstop. So, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to reflect after all of this is over, when we're not in this very intensive period of negotiation and um, chatting. I th suppose that what struck me in terms of the effort was after the referendum, the CEOs of various pharmaceutical companies, farm organisations coming to my office looking for me to help now. And, you know, I, I suppose because I am a bit straight, I said, it's a pity you didn't raise your voices, you know, before. But there was a real fear. I mean, it's interesting to see how industry was fearful, maybe academia as well, of maybe putting themselves out there um, and then feeling that they might be shot down for speaking out. And I suppose we've had experiences of referendum where we voted twice. And some people say, well, that was outrageous and we were weak. I think it's very courageous. The people kicked the government for not explaining the detail and they voted against it. And when you go back with more information, then, you know, I think it's, it's more reflective of our ability to do that. I don't think there's the same uh, mentality in Northern Ireland, although my Labour colleagues in the Parliament are always saying to me, no, Mary, there will be a second referendum, please don't rule it out. But I don't know. Does anyone really believe? Hands up those who think there will be a second referendum. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I just, I just don't see it happening. Um, but I, I wouldn't like, you know, this conversation to say, you know, Brexit, we'll sort it and everything else is rosy. It's far from. Uh, it, it, we've issues in Italy, we've issues in um, Hungary and Poland. Uh, we've all sorts of, of dilemmas. So um, I, I don't mind having troubles as long as you have people who are able to deal with them and can find not the ultimate 100% solution, but a way through them uh, that brings people on the journey. Um, and, and I think to do it in an era where everything is now instant. I mean, they're very fascinating when reports are issued. I'll get a call 
from a journalist to say, what do you think about that? And I say, well, give me a chance to open it and, and read at least the summary and conclusions. And unfortunately, the narrative in the UK on Brexit was set by headlines which had no bearing to the reality or truth of a story. But if you're fed that over time, what else do you believe? And also there are people in British society, and there are probably in Irish society as well, who are left behind. And they were angry. Yeah. And they were, you know, somebody was able to channel that anger. Um, but there's also people um, of, of high means who could persuade others uh, that they would be better off outside of the European Union, who are now saying, well, maybe I didn't quite mean it, that you'd be better off immediately, but over time. Kate. Just um, on the point that you made um, around the sort of the EU narrative, you know, the who are we mm. identity question that we haven't yet found. And I think Kevin O'Rourke this morning made a point referring to his, his dad's time in Brussels that there was a stronger narrative and it was around the social democratic project and it was aimed at ensuring what had happened before would happen again, doing that through an economic yeah. safety net support for people who mm. do get left behind. To hear your sense for you know what the, the mood and the feeling is for that particular cohort of people because the Brexit referendum was a cry for help in many mm. ways and a cry of desperation and as is happening in elsewhere um, is that being taken seriously is the role of um, Europe uh, in the kind of creation of policies that can alleviate or otherwise this particular yeah. The, the social pillar is actually very big. I think President Juncker, I think he's, he has led that about having a more look, not just to the economic, but also to the social uh, and work-life balance and those issues that matter to, to families and to men and women. So, I, yeah, I think that there is, but I still believe, and maybe, Alan, you might be going to help me on this, I think the economic crash impact is still lingering in mindsets and the pain is still being felt by people so even though there is a more orientation towards the social dimension um, and workers and etc., that you know people are still hurting from that period of time, and it will take a little bit more time for it to sink in that Europe is about much more than just you know uh, growth rates and economies and those hard edge things which are important for all of the social dimension as well. No, no, it's very much there. Um, you know, Marion Tyson, the commissioner who looks after that area, does a lot of work on this issue, but a lot of the work has to be done in member states as well, you know. In many member states, uh, each successive financial crash, the gap between rich and poor grows and, and doesn't reduce them before the next um, shock, if you like, so it's that sort of um, gap between the... the, the, the Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's as straightforward as the gap. I, I just, I'm not the econ economist in the room, but I, I, there are figures, if I could remember them, that, you know, it, okay, there are problems in terms of, of distribution of wealth. Um, but it's often a bit like small or large farmers, you know. Um, everybody's a small farmer when it comes to wanting support, but when they're out and about, they've, they're large. I, I suppose sometimes I think that, that analogy feels, feeds into people who feel that they're, like the squeezed middle, I read something recently that they're not that squeezed. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I, I, I kind of picked up, I know in the last campaign in 2014 when I was campaigning, the number of people who came, you know, when I would go to a door, which I didn't do much, but I did a few doors uh, with some local candidates, 
fearful for their children. Um, and therefore, when you're fearful, you will vote for a narrative that's definite. Um, and unfortunately, the world doesn't lead us in that direction. Things are not as straightforward as being, this is the right way to go. But I was struck by that and fearful that they wouldn't have a certainty of work. Uh, you know, even though now there's uh, a lot of employment in Ireland, we have full employment. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there is that social dimension is very strongly there. The other thing that people probably don't know about is the number of groups from Ireland that come to the Parliament to network with similar groups. Um, I had Midland Simon over uh, two weeks ago, and they um, it was a really interesting development. They met the Commission as well. But there are... Um, a whole team of psychologists um, and psychiatrists across Europe who are dealing with um, homelessness where there's mental health issues. And rather than institutionalizing the care that they give, they go onto the streets and they work and they get people homes. And to link up an Irish uh, organization with that and the knowledge that flows from it has huge uh, benefits. And that happens right across sectors. And I don't think we value that in the whole European thing. And also, when people have a problem with the Irish government, they come to Europe to, to sort of sort it out. So Europe isn't always the, the bugbear. We'll take one more question if it's here. I think we're probably getting to the time where Maria will need a break before okay. she gets to her next session. But okay, we've got two here. So one here, then <coughs> yourself. Welcome to call as usual. Thank you. I didn't spot two, you in the audience. Com two comments, I think. One is, um, I think, and it came across here in this morning's uh, session, that there's an information deficit, right? Uh, it's Europe's fault. And there's also a breakdown in trust, yeah. right? Uh, now, uh, am I dreaming that at one stage there was uh, uh, an attempt, or uh, it was dreamt up perhaps, that Europe was going to um, have some presence in Dáil Ireland or in Oroctus by way of bringing the information from Europe to Ireland or to national uh, audiences, right? Okay, um, two, two parts to the answer. One is, I often think there's too much information. And people just don't read a lot of information. I mean, there's endless releases from the Commission, the Parliament, individuals. Um, so it's, it, I think it's more of, is it the right information or is it getting to, to, to people? I don't think the gap is as big as we let on. I, I, you know, it's, it depends. A lot of um, stakeholders, like from the university sector, from consumer lobbies, farm lobbies, the chemical industry, they, they have a stake in all of this, and they're citizens as well. So I, I sometimes think it's, it's that information, it's, it's overload. Um, and that's why it, it's important to have a narrative. As to having a presence in Leinster House, the European Commission and Parliament have an office in Dublin. The location isn't great, and we're looking at that. It's dreadful. Um, so hopefully that will change. But remember that Oireachtas members come to meetings of their counterparts in the presidency. So um, during the Austrian presidency, they would come over the European Affairs Committee members. And the way that's supposed to work is that that then feeds back into their work in Leinster House. They do scrutinize legislation. But a lot of it is boring, so nobody's going to read a boring story about, you know, a turgid piece of legislation like medical devices, which has a huge impact for anybody who might be using them. So I don't, I don't know. I don't despair as much as your question suggests that people don't know or there's a lack of information. I've never seen as many statements and releases, and there's loads of information. Um, 
And I think even our programmes in schools will hopefully benefit that these children learn about countries and learn about the flag and learn about different things and that that will stay with them. I think that's the best place to, to bring the narrative. So maybe I, I slightly disagree with it. Just finally, the, the biggest problem I think for politicians is the time demands of being everywhere. Um, you know, if, you're, if I'm in Brussels doing my job, I'm not here. And I think I have to be here a lot because I think I need to speak with people where they are and listen to what they have to say. And I suppose members of the Dáil feel the same. They, when they go to Brussels, they're invisible, so they want to be where they're visible. I, I would say in the next parliament, strengthening relationships with national parliaments is vital. There's a deep chasm there. And a lot of national parliamentarians, when I speak to them, think that the European Parliament shouldn't have the powers it ha has and that they should be, the nation should be first. And I keep saying, look, we're all elected to do a similar job. We shouldn't have this conflict between us. So if I'm back, I think it's an area we need to work on. Gentleman up there. Yeah, you asked the question uh, about um, do people think that there'll be a second referendum? Yeah. And in the back of the room, I noticed nobody put up their hand. Yeah. Um, I, th I think perhaps people, you know, might be reticent or disinclined to do so. Uh, I mean, I, for one, do think there will be a second referendum. Um, but, uh, so I, I would kind of dismiss that mm. because nobody will that. Yeah, and can I say to that, my husband, who's a sheep farmer, says there'll be no Brexit. I mean, he, he has said this consistently, and there are people who say it won't happen. So I'm going, maybe he's right, and I'm <laughs> completely wrong. Maybe when you commune with nature, you see things more clearly. Um, yeah, I don't dismiss it now, given yesterday's development. I don't dismiss it completely. I just would say that if it's going to happen, it would have to be managed better than the last one. And maybe the outcome would be different. I'm just not so sure. I'm not so sure. As somebody reminded me, I think that the UK were always not quite as engaged in Europe in the way that Europe is engaged with itself. And to some extent, Ireland had a bit of that too. We were in it for the trade and the, the money that flowed. And I think now we will be challenged to find a, a new relationship with <coughs> Europe um, when the United Kingdom leaves, as well as trying to maintain and strengthen our relationships with the United Kingdom. So we'll be taking the energy tablets or whatever it is you take to keep yourself going. If your husband comes and cheers up tomorrow... Oh, my husband would cheer anybody up, actually. He's great. He's very stoic about these things. Okay, I think on that note... Can I ask you just yeah. a question? Sorry, go on. Yeah, Earlier this morning, um, Tony um, Connolly um, was talking about legally um, binding agreements. And I think I've got the right phrase here when he referred to a conditional interpretive declaration. It's all the rage. That we yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. House of Commons um, last Friday, when it was very empty, need I add, mm -hmm. about 10 past four last Friday, yeah. and the Friday afternoon. Yeah. And um, I don't want to draw you on that, mm. um, but what I was drawn to is this drive by Theresa May to find a legally binding something out there yeah. that will that will get the DUP to say yes. Um, but when push comes to shove, surely there's two jurisdictions here. There's the north, and th there's us down here. I've been living here for 15 years. Um, so I still don't get it, even if, 
you know, they find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, mm. so to speak, and they're able to, to, to get the DUP over the line and everything. Will it make any difference? I suppose I alluded to that early on, that the, the reason Europe is sticking to the agreement that's on the table and not reopening the text of it, while also offering interpretation and flexibility um, around it, is because we are not certain that any changes to the withdrawal agreement text would get through the House of Commons. So why would you reopen and cause a problem for lots of member states might have other issues then that they want on the table. So I think that's why it's not happening. Because there, there isn't trust there, it would appear from the um, shadow um, Brexit secretary mm. that in terms of employment rights, for example, That's right, yeah. is there, mm. um, that he spoke about yesterday. Mm. And um, in addition to that, the single market mm. as well, that, there, that, that they, you know, it's the Theresa May policy rather than uh, the Westminster policy that that, that, that could just it's a declaration mm. well on a personal note I, I i watch the prime minister stand up very stoically every so often and i wonder how would you get out of bed to face that it's been quite a challenge and i even flow i sometimes think you know god she is doing a great job trying to pull it together but i think the problem and we're back to you know this is a vicious circle really if you're trying to um have a brexit to keep your party together it's a very different one than one that's focused on the country and the long term. And I fear that it is the latter that's in play at the moment. So those brave um, three women who left the Conservative Party, you know, I think that makes a difference. Anne Soubry and, and the others have been very vocal. Um, and it's been very difficult. We have two colleagues, uh, Conservative MEPs, who joined, rejoined the EPP, so they left the their Conservative colleagues in the European Parliament because they took a different view. And that must be very difficult for them. Um, so I don't underestimate the trauma for a lot of people in the United Kingdom. I mean, I would get messages from friends of mine in the House of Commons who are very traumatised by what's happening. It's not an easy place for them either. Um, and they're trying to find a way forward. So I think it's better that we are certain and that they try and find some solution around that without reopening what is already signed up to. So it's like this. But I do read the Ladybird books on Brexit very avidly. I got them for Christmas. They're absolutely Emer bought it for me. She was a joy, so and I'm not sharing it. But um, so I hope. I mean, I just conclude by this. I think this has been really good. I wish I'd been here for it because one of the joys, and I arrived early, was just to listen to other voices. And I think that is the problem with politics today that people don't actually listen. I mean, even the very controversial thing about the PAC committee and people going in and out making statements and not listening. Um, so I go back and plead to academics, politics needs a reboot on how we work um, because it's been driven not by good analysis and careful decision making. It's driven by many other things and it's driven by the immediate and I think that's very tragic. And indeed on that note, both in real life and online, it's often said that too many people are retreating into echo chambers. Yeah, yeah. We're all yeah. guilty of it. Yeah. Mered, good to meet you, Margaret. Thank you.